Welcome to TrackCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thank you for joining us. On today's show, we're presenting a replay of our Public Policy 101 event from June 2nd about the complexities of conducting business with the city of Dallas. In short, it's complicated, but our guests, Robin Bentley from the city's Office of Economic Development and Tamala Thornton of Eastmith Legacy Holdings, walk us through it all. That's coming up in just a bit. If you're new to the show and joining us today for the first time, welcome. Thank you for being with us. Please make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app to get all new episodes like this one right to your mobile device. We're available on most major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Be sure to follow Trek on social media as well so you never miss an update from us. We've linked to each of our profiles in the show notes for this episode. Now, here's our Public Policy 101 event, It's Complicated, featuring Robin Bentley and Tamala Thornton right here on TrackCast. Share with the audience just generally what the tiered process is, and um, then I want to ask Tamala how you would see igniting um, your goals and efforts into that policy, given that it, your projects will mostly likely be catalytic. Right. I'm sorry, Maddie, I lost so, your So, Robin, can you, saying something yeah, can you share months? the tier? You said next 18 months. So, can you tell us a little bit about how you staged the policy mm -hmm. into like components sure. of, of objectives to get to uh, a sure. smooth, uh, I guess, accessibility by the development community? Mm -hmm. So, we have um, two big steps next. First will be establishment of the task force because we want the rollout of the policy to be absolutely as transparent as possible. And we want to make sure that we have input, constant input from the development community and stakeholders and experts. And so my commitment is that all of those meetings will be open to the public and all of those meetings will have a public speaking component. Because even if you're not on the task force, we want to hear from you. And then I'm actually going to put my contact info in the chat. Um, because I know a lot of you on the call and I know you have thoughts on all of this and I want to hear what you're thinking as we go along um, with the task force. The other component is we've got to get some consultants on board because I know economic development seems like a big department, but it's only about 40 people total. And that's administering all the TIFs and all the PIDs and doing all of the business recruitment. That's the whole department. And about half of that is the financing compliance staff. And so, um, we just don't have capacity to roll this out in a really thoughtful way and keep doing all the work we're doing. So we're going to be embedding um, a couple of consultants here at City Hall to help us with not only the policy rollout, but also with standing up the new economic development entity. Okay, great. Tamala, having now uh, witnessed that we have an economic development policy, what, what are your initial thoughts on how you would ignite, um, you know, movement in the development space from your vantage point now that we have a policy? You know, I think uh, one of the things that Robin said was really kind of interesting because, especially for what I'm doing, which is looking at catalytic projects that may be in, on sites that are, as she said, not traditionally bankable or not traditionally as interesting to your mainstream retailers, but that meet some of the requirements of the city to, to create kind of economically diverse opportunities for local entrepreneurs or growth in areas that have 
kind of traditionally been overlooked. I think the challenge that we'll have, and I'm, I'm actually very, very pleased to hear just the process, is that oftentimes what happens is that the, 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 the directions, the roles, the understanding of, of implementation is inconsistent. And particularly if you're talking about what your council person may understand or expect or like to see versus what an economic development resource may like to see or some of the other, other documentation that you need to pull in place to actually um, codify your deal. So having, and also then acknowledging as Robin just said that they've got a staff that is really not necessarily structured to facilitate and support some of this activity. So I think having um, a task force and then some dedicated resources that will augment the capabilities and, and the just the bandwidth, not necessarily the capabilities, but the bandwidth of the existing economic development team, I think is important because I know one of the challenges, and I've had this conversation with many other developers, is that sometimes the process seems complicated because what may, be, may have come out in paperwork, the paperwork might be two or three years old, somebody else is looking at new paperwork, you just have, just have some disconnects in, in communication. So I think that's, right. that's gonna be helpful. But also, okay. yeah. I, I think it's important as we go forward, and this is something that having the constant input from the development community as well as others is recognizing that although there are processes in place and policies in place, you still have to make sure that as we're evaluating transactions that you're constantly looking at making sure that the recommendations that are being made are economically advised within the context of the project and the areas that, that you're trying to impact. Right, I think that's key because there are uniqueness to every deal. Some deals are gonna be able to um, just take on different risks because of the location and the comps that may or may not currently exist. Pamela, visit with us a little bit about the comps because some of the catalytic, and so I want to go a little bit about the catalytic nature, which is your expertise um, in bringing value to a community or a sector that will beget the ability to get the bankable or the loans and the financing. You are uniquely also um, very experienced in getting money very easily. That's, um, that's relative, but you know, I'm saying some of these areas, the reason there's a challenge because there's no comps. Right. So for a catalytic developer, which you've done an excellent job, share with us just how you're going to communicate, speaking back to public policy, the merits of supporting a deal in an area that doesn't have the comps. That is a core um, bases by which one gets financing. Right. And I think, I mean, this is one of those areas where just the concept of comps, I think we also have to have to think through, because if you look at many areas, I mean, even the transaction that I've been working on right now in uh, South Oak Cliff and went to, went to have the property appraised and the appraiser came and was pulling what were identified as comps. First thing, there hadn't been very many market transactions immediately in the um, in the trade area surrounding surrounding the opportunity we were looking at so there really weren't any common comps and then what started being being identified as quote unquote comparable assets were were often um, 
not particularly comparable just based on the nature of their occupancy, their age, or what their, what their future potential might be. So a lot of it is just kind of having the conversation. And I, and I learned some of this working internationally where you also don't have comps or don't have traditional real estate transactions, is trying to understand what other pieces of information should you be looking at in addition to traditional real estate transactional activity to understand what value is and what value should be from a from a financing and a financeability standpoint. So with respect to that and having looked at the economic development policy, what do you think is going to be the best nugget in the economic development policy? Um, understanding it's a live document right, right. that would advance their initiatives and other developers um, that might be interested in doing deals in Dallas? Hmm. I think it's, it's a tough question to answer, and I think it depends on where you are. If you're in, in certain areas, say in parts of South Oak Cliff, you might want to look at, look at other demographic factors like home ownership or like um, not necessarily um, direct wage, but you might want to look at, sale, at sales comps of or, or sales transactions of operating businesses. You might want to look at um, job creation of some of some of your um, let me let me let me call them some of your entrepreneurial activity because you don't have you don't have the obvious data and it's I mean you might have to and I think the consultants will will help in this in this regard try and understand how do you look at other markets and track trends in other markets and use those other market activities as comparable activity to a transaction that you're looking at doing domestic or here in, in Dallas. Right. Robin, um, you mentioned a little bit about um, the areas that are in your department that you manage. Talk to us a little bit about business development because I think of sometimes citizens are frustrated because things aren't happening in their neighborhoods. But the city is not a developer. The city supports development and drives development through incentives and or having good public policy. So what is your goal or your approach on how we're going to entice developers to go in some of the underserved areas, particularly using the tool economic development or, uh, or some of your directions with your staff and consultants? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, under our new chief, Dr. Johnson, the city's been a lot more aggressive about trying to leverage our own assets to draw development in. Like Tamla was saying, somebody's got to go first. Somebody's got to set the comp to kick off development in a neighborhood. And often in those neighborhoods, one of the largest landowners is the city of Dallas. And so we've not leveraged those assets well um, until recently with the thousand unit housing challenge, which is all um, leveraging city-owned property near transit or with the community-inspired redevelopment um, pilot project, which the first one is the 12,000 Greenville site, um, which would be an agriculture and um, tiny home project. So we've not really done a great job of that historically, but we're trying to look at more creative ways to leverage a great asset that is just really sitting idle, which is large city-owned tracks in these areas where a catalytic first project is needed to start setting the market so someone else can come behind and have an easier time getting their financing lined up. Right. So we all know healthy communities has a band, you know, um, planners will share, you know, there's 
moving from single family, multifamily, industrial, you know, and, and then now uh, weaving in um, all kinds of public spaces. Um, Robin, how do you see other departments across the city working towards an overall healthier Dallas, all more inclusive Dallas? Because again, public policy 101, it's just making sure that everyone's on board and has, you know, while different departments, hopefully one lens of a successful Dallas. What is the plan and is there any particular strategy in place to ensure that there's connectivity um, and traffic amongst the departments? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, as you all know, the city has historically been very good at planning and not great at implementation. And um, <laughs> I think the tolerance for that is gone. And so there's a real demand at this point to make sure that our policy looks at the CCAP and looks at the comprehensive housing policy and incorporates elements and vice versa. Um, Office of Economic Development has historically led on food security issues. We have um, the tools and incentives to do that. But the CCAP also has a food security component. So we're working with them on that piece. And that's really helping to integrate all of the policies together. Um, you'll see in the economic development policy, if you take a look, it references back to all of those other works that other departments are doing because they're not that far apart. They're not exactly the same audience, but they're maybe one degree off. And so there is a lot of overlap um, in the work that we're doing. And so trying to integrate all of those policies and implementation is a, a newer thing for the city, but something we're trying to do better this time around. Do you think you're going to see a lot of zoning requests, given that um, if you look at a map, it's not necessarily all, you know, in a, I guess, premier way of the, of the advice we're getting now from experts across the country, the bands and the connectivity of the communities and having, you know, holistic um, units within neighborhoods. And so to do that, we're going to have to have some zoning changes, but there's a lot of resistance of zoning, particularly in the southern sector, where there are some advocates that just want only single family. So what are your thoughts on how we're going to communicate, even to PNZ, that you're going to have to have some zoning changes, because you're going to have to get comps, and to get comps, you're going to have to drive this, and if you have food desert issues. So share with us a little bit about how tough you think it's going to be, and how are you going to have policy assist you in making sure that, you know, that we can actually get past that hurdle on yeah, zoning? So what I'm looking forward to the most over these next few months um, is seeing what happens with the Forward Dallas plan, the land use plan for the city. I think um, historically it's been, to use this word again, maybe not as aggressive as it could have been in setting policy for the city through land use. And so I think you'll see more of that in this new plan. Um, I'm excited to see the direction it takes. Um, Pierre, Pierre Chaco being a, a really great leader and then Dr. Johnson, like I said, is, is taking a more aggressive stance with how the city can set policy um, through these documents to really uh, be a more progressive city. So I'm looking forward to seeing where that goes. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to follow up. With can I just question have just a I was just going to say okay, a comment. Ahead, ahead, yeah, I do. I think there you are going to start seeing a little bit more, some more zoning requests, particularly in the southern sector, because you've got, I mean, a lot of adjacencies that just commercially don't make sense. And um, you, 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 
you want to understand that yes, there is there is a need for single family housing, but I think we've we've had just the abundance of the R seven point five single family housing or zoning code that's kind of taken over or or really defines much of what you see in the southern sector. But if you're really talking about trying to create healthy and diverse communities, you have to have that combination of residential use, single family residential use that might transition to a slightly higher density use of either townhomes or apartments that then might transition to some limited commercial uses and then some higher in commercial uses. And oftentimes those, th those uses really kind of need to, to um, be present relatively close to each other. And so you aren't necessarily going to see very clearly defined boundaries and, and sometimes seeing those clearly defined boundaries may, may be detrimental to the growth and, and the creation of the healthy community that, you're, that we're trying to see. So I think we're going to start seeing some of those changes. Right. And I think it's a challenge just to educate our, you know, we have a lot of volunteers that do great work on these commissions and we don't want to do anything but support their participation. But what are your thoughts, Tamala, on just what you've experienced on the education that might need to occur from a public policy standpoint, because if one doesn't really get the where we're going, um, then it's kind of hard for them to understand how supporting that in their spaces on these boards and in these venues. Do you see that as a challenge um, that our volunteers on the PNZ and other commissions might need to understand a little bit about the complexities of what we're doing? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, th I think it's a challenge, but I also think it's an opportunity because so much of what, of what happens, and especially as a developer, so much of what happens is about translating an, a, a vision into an executional idea. And I think, as, as Robin said, we, we've been good at being visionaries, but not necessarily helping people understand how do you take that vision and actually actionize that vision. And a lot of times that's about what are the compromises? What are, what are, the, what are the phase one activities that you do that might be a little bit more simple versus that, that could lead to the phase two activities that may be a little bit more aspirational? You don't, now, clearly don't want to have everything stuck in phase one because you don't get any creativity and any, any kind of uplift. But you, you also do need to make sure that particularly the committees or the boards that are, that are volunteer boards are not just bringing their personal perspective to a, to a project, but are also having to step back and say, how, do, how does the decision that we're looking at potentially holistically affect the ability of a project to actually get completed? Right. And that's, it's like, it's like, I mean, something as simple as do we, when we recommend a kind of a, a light fixture that we would like to see as a standard light fixture, do we pick the light fixture that's the most beautiful fixture that you can find, but that costs $8,000 a pole? Or do we do we try and find something that reflects those aesthetics, but that may be a little bit more affordable because then, you, then you're much more likely to get it implemented in multiple locations. Right, good point. Because it is all about your financing at some point too. We have to, the two must uh, connect in a very positive way. Um, there were a couple of questions that our team um, wanted to make sure we touched on, and I wanted to go there, um, kind of pivot to that if we could. And one is, um, Robin, how does development, particularly urban development, benefit Dallas? 
and how should Dallas best collaborate with developers? Okay, that's a very broad question. I mean, I would say urban <laughs> development, <laughs> urban development is um, all, development all in Dallas, aren't we all in urban area? Right. Uh, I think we've divided into sectors for too long and really development of the entire city is to the benefit of the neighborhoods surrounding um, those developments. Commercial corridors, particularly in Southern Dallas, will be one of my focuses. Uh, we have the broadest toolbox of any city in Dallas to do deals. We have every incentive that any other Texas city has, plus a few more. We're the only Texas city to have new market tax credits, which as you know, Maddie, can be absolutely catalytic in areas like Southern Dallas. Yes. Um, and then in working with the development community, I think what developers are looking for, what I'm hearing them say they're looking for is predictability and transparency and for the policies to be really clear and to stay the same and to not um, be changing constantly to be something new to, to traverse with the city. And so um, it's been one of my criticisms of our department that our policies are a little cryptic. When you look for our tax abatement policy, it's buried inside another larger policy, the public-private partnership guidelines. And I would rather see us just have a really clear tax abatement policy for developers looking for that. And so that's some of the work we'll be doing with those consultants is making it where the toolbox is really clear and laid out and the rules are really predictable. And when developers come in, they know what the rules are and how to play. So that's that's a goal for me. Right, and I'll, I can congratulate the city um, in its recent past in particular on just the successes we've gotten with the housing policies. We had to do some tweaking there, particularly with the bond program and tax credits um, with the supplement that we had, which was great. So we got it done. And now with economic development policy. So um, I see very optimistic and I congratulate all the hard work and effort that's occurred in the city and those um, in leadership at city council and in city manager's office that has made sure that we have just pushed through um, and gotten that, that stuff done. It was not easy. Um, what are a couple of ways that you would foster collaboration with developers, Robin? Um, and this is kind of a part two of one of the questions that um, some of the team had asked uh, me to cover, particularly given we, we've had a kind of a reputation in Dallas of running off developers. And um, because they just were frustrated. Um, because you don't know what is going to be the momentum at a council vote or wherever that they didn't see it coming. What, how are you anticipating through public policy being allowed, uh, um, what are your ways of, of making sure you can garner um, the attraction and the sustainability of interest by developers because we are making, you know, some improvements in that area? Yeah, you asked basically two different questions, which is um, how okay. do we keep developers interested in Dallas and then how do we make sure that the deals get through the council? I'll speak to the second yes. part first. I, okay. I can count on one finger the deals that we've taken to council since I've been in the Office of Economic Development that have not been passed. And it was just a weird one off. And that's because when we take a deal to council, it's not about the nuts and bolts of the deal. It's about the story and what the deal's bringing to the community and what the developers bringing to the citizens and how the wages will impact the community. It's really a story about benefit to the community. And then there's also some benefit to the developer. So those have all passed with no problem. I think your first question is probably a more important one, which is how do we keep developers interested in Dallas? 
And for business recruitment, that hasn't been an issue yet. Um, businesses are still very interested in looking at Dallas and coming to Dallas. And we have a really robust pipeline of companies looking. But for developers who have a choice of where to build, our process has to be simpler and more predictable. And it seems based on press coverage lately, I would say that the real stumbling box seems to be permitting. I'm not in charge of permitting, but I can tell you that the chief over permitting is the same one over economic development and housing and planning. So all of those efforts are now intertwined under one chief um, who I know is aggressively looking at ways to improve the permitting process because it is an issue that, um, you know, developers find the process so um, burdensome. And I know the council members hear it, my staff hears it when we're working with developers. And so that will be uh, definitely something the city's working on over the next uh, weeks, months, and perhaps longer. Right. And, you know, and there's different pulse points, I guess, from my experience, what I do every day, the permitting part, I just need to get to where I have a permit. <laughs> I, right. the, the biggest part for the industry and affordable housing in particular is getting to where you can get a deal to get to a permit. Permitting is, is the least of our worries um, in that industry. So, um, Tamala, Dallas is a large city. Do you believe that the city's regulations um, are such that it will support what might be a good model for gentrification? Um, so let me back up and ask it a little differently. What is your viewpoint on um, how we could develop knowing that there are concerns around gentrification? Some people say gentrification is great, it means inclusion, and others think that there might be pushing folks out of their uh, neighborhoods because of taxes and a lot of other issues, and that the product is gonna be bought and they're gonna no longer be um, able to live there. Give us your general thoughts, if you would, Tamala, about gentrification and how um, your firm looks to participate in healthy redevelopment. Well, I, I think the whole conversation about gentrification is really one about healthy communities and, health, and healthy inclusive communities. Because typically, when, when folks start talking about gentrification, particularly as a concern for growth, it's about displacement. Because typically what happens is communities get to a point where they've, they've been allowed either by, by direct neglect or by just the, the lack of simple, predictable, transparent ways of, of making change or for, for folks who are currently within the community to make change for themselves. And so you know, they get to a point where they become attractive to outsiders, third-party developers, because they're affordable. And but then what what the flip side of that is, is that there's going to be displacement because uh, radical change and typically the way that we've been making changes in the city of Dallas is you find a community, you kind of bulldoze it, you build new stuff and everybody, and, and everybody who was there has got to figure out something else, else to do. Really what I think we should be trying to pay attention to is how do you create structures or concepts or incentives that encourage investment or support investment by certain folks who are already within their communities to improve their house, to potentially take their home-based business and figure out how to, how to theoretically put it into um, <clears throat> street front retail that, that's acceptable at a cost-effective basis that doesn't have so many 
kind of layers of requirement that keep them from making it a feasible investment so that you end up having mixed income communities because healthy communities are communities that that have opportunities for folks to move up but not necessarily have to move out and i think part of what um, we've been looking at when you think about catalytic activities as well as when you think through kind of some of some of the other activities that we're that the city is looking at in terms of bringing diverse housing types together is creating those environments where people can stay because then you you can have what I'll call some self gentrification which is 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 place based gentrification in addition to new investment in communities right i agree wholeheartedly um, and with respect to um, emphasis and investment. Robin, is there any emphasis and investment in certain neighborhoods? Um, or how, how are you approaching that? Yeah, I first just want to say, Tamla, that was perfectly said about gentrification. It really is about displacement of the existing residents. So beautifully said. Um, targeting for particular neighborhoods? No, not really. I think we can see where development trends are headed. And housing and economic development are the same thing they're two sides of the same coin and so trying to steer affordable housing to those areas before um, the economic development boom happens is a little bit of a, a guessing game i think maddie you know you work with these developers that's where they're trying to guess is where mm -hmm. to build where they think more development is coming um, to secure that long-term affordable housing first um, but as far as targeting particular neighborhoods for investment no not really no, I think I think probably the one that I've heard you mention today was the transit-oriented development. So that's an emphasis of leverage, correct? Right. Where you all yeah, may have real estate. It's more about that's it. I mean, the the drivers of poverty are considerations we always take into um, account when we're looking at a project, and and one of those is transit costs and the cost of folks to get to their job and to get to a grocery store. And so, partnering affordable housing with transit was just kind of a no-brainer. Right, right. Um, there's a lot of discussion, and I think even when you look at the point system and some of the city documents, um, and you're looking at mitigating what might be an area of poverty or um, other factors that we look at when we are assessing, um, you know, real estate transactions and city support, the issue about amenities and the proximity of amenities to a project is embedded in the policy. That's not unusual across the country. What are your thoughts on how we might tackle as a city and people who are in spaces that invest? You know, a lot of the Trek members are um, in positions of influence and can direct investment in the city of Dallas and across the country in their, in their jobs. What are your thoughts on how we might as a city communicate some of this to our stakeholders on investing in areas that might um, really benefit for better Dallas, as I say. One being food deserts, lack of grocery stores in certain communities. Is there a certain strategy uh, that you've come up with or what are your thoughts on how to do that? Yeah, food deserts are tricky. Um, as you know, the city has had a history of throwing out big amounts of money, trying to lure in grocery stores to Southern Dallas. It has not particularly right. worked well and so I think what we're doing now is probably less flashy, but more effective, which is that we're using the Dallas Development Fund, the entity that oversees our new market tax credits, um, to fund smaller place-based 
healthy food initiatives. So things as simple as helping to get a cooler into a corner store so they can carry fresh foods um, to things, you know, like double dollars and all of those sorts of smaller neighborhood-based incentives. And those have really been effective. And then we're always looking for the big grocery store in Southern Dallas. But until then, things like we just approved a grocery store deal um, at John West and Buckner to take a vacant store, um, move in a grocery vendor, and redo the entire shopping center to bring in a sit-down restaurant and other retail. So it's part of a larger reinvestment for that neighborhood. So we'll keep trying for that home run, HEB in Southern Dallas. But in the meantime, it has to be these smaller, more targeted right. efforts just to bring the food access to people who don't have it while we're waiting for that big home run. Well, congratulations on the big project and um, a strategy along the way for um, the outlets that are needed in certain sectors of the city. Um, so one quick question that I wanted to talk about, um, how do you protect smaller communities that don't have the staff or political will to require high design and construction standards? Um, there is a viewpoint that perhaps there's not as a pristine uh, product that goes into certain parts of the city. What are your thoughts on, on that, uh, Robin? And then I wanted to hear from you, Tamala, on what you believe are just internal standards on ensuring the product has a certain uh, level um, as a business, as a business um, thesis. Right. So Robin, could you go first on that question? Yeah, I, I, would, I would say um, maybe historically that's been the case. I don't think that's the case now. All of our deals have to go through the urban design review panel and they're looking at things like how does the project interact with the neighborhood? How is it addressing pedestrian access? Is it including sufficient green space? And all of those comments really do add up into the project budget, but that's okay. That just makes the gap bigger for us to fill, right? So <laughs> we know we're gonna have to bring more money to make the project better for the neighborhood. And so it's not a pick and choose, um, this project goes and this project doesn't. The grocery store project I just told you about went through that process. And so um, I think that's, it's a group of volunteer landscape architects and um, architects and engineers and folks who know this you know, area that I don't know, I'm a lawyer by trade. And so they look at the deals and um, come up with these really good suggestions of how to better interface the project with the neighborhood and make sure that it's aesthetically pleasing pedestrian access is good, that it's serving the neighborhood. And so I think that's really helped bring up the design standard. And Tamla's been through that process. She can tell you about it. Yeah, I Tamla. actually, I did go through the process. And in many instances, I think it was actually a, a good process to, to participate in, just in terms of, of kind of encouraging thinking um, and bringing, bringing at least exposure to to new concepts or new ideas that may not may not have necessarily been either on my radar screen or or initially in my project plan i think it goes back to something that robin was saying earlier just about making sure that the process is predictable and even in terms of say using the utilizing the urban design review activities earlier early on in a conversation versus waiting until a project gets conceptualized to say, okay, now one of your requirements is to go back through this panel because oftentimes 
what what happens is by the time you then go back to urban design review you've kind of set your budget in place and started having the conversations with your with your other capital partners and layering in additional um, more aesthetic features isn't necessarily consistent with kind of the structure that you might have identified and, and actually have gotten approved in your in your um, financing. The other thing that I think is is important is just to make sure that that we remember that this is not development is not a one size fits all and a lot of times we have here in Dallas and many of the developers that have worked with have the aesthetic because you you can from a suburban standpoint is you get a vacant corner you have a concept and you can build that concept when you're talking about either infill or redevelopment or working in communities that are a little bit different you have to have to think about those opportunities differently and then figure out like you said what what are your leverage points is your leverage point trying to engage with um the school or or a major employer to identify what their needs are and then incorporate that into your program those are those are sometimes conversations that you don't have to have as you're thinking about developing in the suburbs right right and redevelopment is is really key here because you know just conversation amongst peers and you know just everyday life people are saying well why does certain parts of dallas look so different from from you know other sectors of dallas and you know why don't we have the tall buildings why do our sidewalks not look the same you know what is why is it so different and i know we can do a better job and, and i just know we can and i'm excited about you know dr johnson's arrival and just how he's hit the floor running and, and just a lot of good 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 stuff is happening um and a question i want to ask both of you is um how does commercial redevelopment impact the local community because we don't have a lot of commercial in certain sectors of Dallas. So what is your experience um, on how commercial redevelopment impacts the local community? And if you have an example, what project have you initiated that has strengthened the local community, um, regardless if it's you know core commercial or otherwise? Because I know Tamla, you just did an exciting project over in the Lancaster area. Right. in Dallas. So can you share with us about commercial redevelopment and how you think it's having a positive impact? And maybe that's your example you would share. And I want Robin to share what she thinks some of the projects she's um, supported in her role and how it's made an impact as well. Well, I think, you know, I actually, as a commercial developer, I think commercial development is really key because when you talk about economic impact, typically economic impact is really fostered from the ability to either create jobs, go to a job, or, or um, transact business. And if you've got strong residential communities but no commercial services, what tends to happen is those folks, people look for commercial activity in other, in other markets or other environments. And ultimately, if you have the ability to make the choice, you make the choice to relocate to be more proximate to those, those commercial activities. And that's why, I mean, even like we were talking about earlier, leveraging the rail and transit as, as your facilitator for commercial activity that then lends itself to residential activity is important because you can't, you can't um, housing tax base your way into a strong thriving community. You have to have a balance of other, other entities that are, that are broadening your tax base. Right. And that's what commercial, commercial growth does. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. Commercial development is jobs. And so it's a little unusual, but in our commercial development deals, we're requiring things like minimum wages and local hiring and things that impact the neighborhood directly around that commercial development. So it's really about services to the communities and the jobs that are being created. How's it uh, been received about the minimum wage, Robin? You know, at the very beginning, when we were asking for $15 an hour, it was a bit of a conversation. But since Amazon set their warehouse wage at $15 an hour, I think that really is the market minimum wage now. And so it has never been an issue since then. We, we bring it up and people just kind of nod like, yeah, that's fine. So it's been no problem. I think one of, the, one of the interesting rubs, especially as a developer, is that fundamentally, I, don't, I as a developer don't create a job. I create the opportunity for someone who's in business to locate and create that job. So, so sometimes putting the, the minimum wage requirement at the developer level is, is a little interesting because yeah, we can write things into leases, but tracking that, managing that, and um, kind of making sure that it happens is, is a little bit more challenging. But I think that's just one of these conversations that we just have to continue to have is how do you, how do you make sure that you can, can encourage that that type of, of investment or those types of, of partners who will make those types of investments. Right, because exactly. if you're doing warehousing, then that's different as opposed to uh, innovation center or you're the shopping center that's bringing in some incubator space and a little bit of restaurant, a little bit of, you know, a little entrepreneur spot here and there. Um, and, but has the policy has been Robin that it is the developer who's asking for the incentive is to ensure that the wages are at 15 or higher. Is that correct? It's a little, it's a little softer, like the grocery store deal I mentioned at Buckner and John West. I, I don't believe it's a direct requirement because like Tamla said, that that developer will be leasing the space to other operators who would create jobs. It's more about putting the thought out there that mm -hmm. you're required to come up with a plan to hire residents from the neighborhood surrounding your development. You're required to think through how you would hire those people in a host job fairs and to make best efforts to do the things that we're asking you to do. It's really hard to do compliance on those, but it's more like planting the seed of thinking through that. Whereas on a warehouse deal, we would require a flat and we'll monitor it every year, $15 an hour minimum, 40% Dallas residents in the jobs. Like we'll be a little stricter if it's that person creating the jobs. Okay. And on your Dallas residents, how do you, can I just move to Dallas or how do you confirm I'm a Dallas resident? I mean, Irving, I'm in Grand Prairie. Mm -hmm. Can you share, since that's a policy of yeah, how one might, is it, is it, is it just an address at the time of the, I mean, how, there's no prerequisite to how long I have to be a resident before I'm tagged a resident, correct? It's when we come to monitor, they pull their payroll logs, no names or addresses, just employee ID numbers and zip codes. And we come in and check and make sure it lines up and then we'll do spot checks on a certain percentage to have them pull that employee file so we can make sure that um, everything is right. And then we have the CFO sign an affidavit saying that all the information was correct. And so that's how Perfect. we're monitoring the local hiring. Okay, that's great. That's very transparent. Um, there was a question about whether, let's see if I can pull it up. Um, did DDF get a new market tax credit allocation for 2021? And if so, how much? 
They haven't announced 2021 yet, but fingers crossed. We're hoping this would be, I believe, our sixth, fifth or sixth allocation. I think we've gotten 185 million so far. So fingers crossed when they announce that we'll we'll get another allocation. Right. I re remember when that first launched, and I'm, it's just been fantastic for the city. It really has. So we're getting close to um, our time. We've got about five minutes left, and I wanted to see if any of our um, attendees had questions. You can put them in the chat, and we can make sure that we pose those to Robin and Tamala. And while we're getting those questions, Robin, uh, give us two of your goals for 2021, 22. I mean, you've got this policy, but what, do you, what would be just an exhilarating success for you in your role? Yeah, huge success for me in my role would be getting the economic development entity stood up. It's not there to replace anything that my department is doing. It's really there to support because for business recruitment and retention, I have two people that do that work. And it is a lot of work. And so um, smaller towns are able to stand up the 4A and 4B economic development corporations and they have these huge booths and lots of staff and can go do uh, recruiting that I just don't have capacity to do. And so if we could get that entity stood up to support my staff to, to be able to help us with travel and marketing and come up with a branding regime for the city, I think that would be a huge accomplishment. Okay, we're rooting for you on that. Um, Tamala, um, you've just launched um, an amazing facility. Can you tell us what your goal is with your most recent transaction or if there's one that you would like to share would be exemplary for um, colleagues to know about? Well, I don't know if everybody knows about um, the 4315 Innovation Center and it's, it was an interesting concept that we, that kind of came to me to be catalytic when uh, the Urban League uh, went away and we now have a, a building, a 30,000 square foot building, which has Dallas College as a, and its workforce um, construction trades and training programming as the anchor tenant, um, University of North Texas. I'm leaving here and going to meet with them is coming into the space to do a little bit more um, youth um, college prep as well as just life prep programming. And so really my goal is to get that project finalized. The, the biggest challenge is, is getting a restaurant cafe concept, which what I'm really looking for is someone who's interested in doing, kind of continuing the innovation in the building and doing both public service of, of cafe food and market, but also having a commitment to do some jobs training so that you can actually start creating within the community opportunities for home-based businesses or what have you to, to commercialize their, their product and actually get themselves ready to potentially lease some space elsewhere along the Lancaster corridor. So just getting that, getting this project stood up and operational is, is my primary goal so we can move on to the next opportunity. Well, I just want to congratulate you on that uh, and you and your firm, because I think that is a V for um, learning, education, and then just basically supporting an individual to get to the next level. Um, and so I'm just wishing you all the best for that. Uh, there is a quick question for Robin. Uh, Robin, you'd mentioned a tiny house village in the works. Um, can you give a little bit more detail about that? Just, um, an overview of what, what's in the works for the tiny house village? Sure. So this is a project at 12,000 Greenville. It's a developer out of Atlanta called City of Refuge. 
and so they're looking to develop um, an agricultural farm, um, a restaurant based off of that farm, sort of like Bonton Village, and then housing for homeless individuals in the form of tiny homes. And so they're still in their option period. This would be an example of buying city land or leasing city land and developing on it. And so they're still putting that deal together, but at the end, what we're expecting is a project that looks like that. Great. Um, that's exciting. I mean, allowing for various different initiatives and business models. Um, some of them are somewhat pilot, I think, for Dallas. And I think that's great because we're seeing uh, a lot of innovation and growth in, in some of these new models that fits different um, backgrounds and interests. And their ability to, to raise financing may not be um, one that could be, you know, some large space downtown Dallas where it could, you know, be someplace that they could do both the agricultural and have the housing and a business all in one. So uh, that's great. Um, so I would like to thank you guys for your time this morning and for all of our um, Trek members and guests who were able to join us this morning. Um, any parting words, Robin and Tamala, as we wrap up would be great. Yeah, I would just say to, to simplify working with the city, you really need to know who to call. And so you all now have my number and email call, please, early in your deal. The earlier, the better. So we can start working with you on the process. That's what we're here for. So call anytime. Okay, and, Tamala? And, yeah, and I would say just, just echoing what Robin said is, is starting early and knowing now that there's a, not now, but knowing that there's a partner in the city and, and structure that's really supportive of growth is is critical and and sub, especially someone that's focused on just that predictability and simplicity which is what we're looking for we want to be able to get in figure it out and just get going fantastic okay so i'm going to pass it back to our fearless leader linda mcmahon for um a sign off and again thank you ladies and um i'm so glad to be your colleague and uh, here to support you. All of Trek is here to support you in any way that we can. Linda? I'm not sure if she's wanting us. Uh, to thanks, everyone. Um, okay. Of course, there my first mute error of the day. Um, I really appreciate Robin and Tamla, your participation today. It is complicated, as we all know, and uh, it's, it sounds like a joke, but it's not, and we appreciate the seriousness with which you take your responsibilities, Robin. Um, I have had the privilege of working with you on several different things, and it's always been a great experience for me because I know your personal dedication to the city, and I know you're trying to make it an, a better place to do business, so thank you for that. And Tamla, just keep charging ahead. We need pioneers like you to continue pushing the envelopes and um, making sure that we're thinking about all areas of our city and trying to do some really innovative programs and projects. So thanks a lot for that. And uh, we appreciate your participation. Maddie, great job. That was very, fa that was fascinating. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, everybody have a great morning. Bye-bye. Bye. That will do it for today's show. I'd like to again thank Robin Bentley and Tamala Thornton for meeting with our members as part of our Public Policy 101 event, It's Complicated. Don't forget to subscribe to the show to get our event replays, roundtable discussions, and exclusive interviews right to your mobile device, and to follow us on social media so you never miss an update from around the Real Estate Council. Until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.